Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our focus today is on digital healthcare and digital therapeutics. There are a number of very disruptive trends in healthcare today. If I had to pick the top two or three, I would suggest to you that one of them is most certainly digital health and therapeutics. This movement is literally transforming the way we think about, deliver, and experience healthcare and health in general. In fact, uh, I interviewed Sean Duffy, the CEO of Amada Health, a few months back, and he refers to digital health as the ether moment in healthcare. Just like the introduction of ether revolutionized and transformed the entire field of surgery, digital health is transforming all of healthcare delivery. It's a complex topic and it's unfolding at an accelerated pace. I would suggest to you that we are in fact in a digital health revolution at this moment in time. And I think it's essential for anyone who's interested in reframing and recreating healthcare to be intimately familiar with this particular topic. And so to that end, we are so fortunate to have on our program today an individual who is an accomplished leader and expert in this field. Anand Iyer is the Chief Strategy Officer at WellDoc. Anand is a respected global digital health leader. He's recognized for his insights and experience with technology, strategy, and regulatory policy. He has been instrumental in WellDoc's success and the development of Blue Star, the first FDA-cleared mobile prescription therapy for adults with type 2 diabetes. Since joining WellDoc in 2008, he has held positions that included Chief Data Science Officer, President, and Chief Operations Officer. In 2013, Anand was named Maryland Healthcare Innovator of the Year in the field of mobile health. As a founding member of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance in November 2017, Anand worked to engage industry leaders on the integration of clinically validated digital therapeutics to improve population health. Prior to joining WellDoc, Anon helped companies take advantage of disruptive technologies and enabled advanced wireless communications. He's, in fact, taught advanced wireless communications to senior officers in the U.S. Department of Defense at the Institute for Defense and Business. Prior to that, Anon was a member of the scientific staff at Bell Northern Research and Nortel Networks. He holds a master's and doctorate in electrical and computer engineering and an MBA from Carnegie Mellon University. Anand, it is such a pleasure to have you on the program. How are you doing today? Oh, it's great to be with you, Zev. I'm doing great, and thanks for asking. How are you? Great. It's a, it's a little rainy here in Charlotte, but uh, it's Friday late afternoon, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> it's looking outside my window now. It's actually snowing here in, uh, in Maryland, and it's snowing quite gently. So I have the backdrop of the snow falling, and I have this wonderful discussion we're going to have ahead of us. So looking forward to it. Oh, that sounds cozy. So, Anand, you and I had a chance to speak, and and I have to say, I was just so enraptured with your background and your understandings and the movement you've been part of. I want to ask you a question. In fact, I have so many questions to just kick us off. But you know, you you have a story uh, about how you got into this and 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 how you got into healthcare. But there's also a story which I read that you had written, I believe, about the founder of WellDoc, uh, Dr. Suzanne Sisko, who's an endocrinologist who had been uh, at the Jocelyn Clinic, in fact. And she sort of had an aha moment. So I, I'd like you to, if you wouldn't mind, telling us a little bit about your story and why you got into this digital health and therapeutics and, and, and a bit about how Dr. Sisko Clow got into it as well. You know, absolutely. Um, uh, if I were to rewind the clock uh, back to the early 90s, uh, when I started my management consulting career at, at PRTM Management Consultants, it was really at the dawn of, of what we called here in the United States 2G cellular. And just imagine where we are today with 5G, right? We've come so far. But what we really focused on was how do you actually build out the infrastructure, the plumbing, that's required to deliver this amazing value proposition of wireless communications. And when we think about it, wireless for all of us then, if you remember way back then, 
the cell phone was actually something that you had in your car uh, because it required a big battery source. It wasn't what we carry today in our pockets, on our on our wrists, you know, with the Internet of uh, Things devices that are attached to us or that are nearby to us. And the, the objective was if you could actually lay uh, aside and, and build out this plumbing, the infrastructure that was going to allow kind of this, you know, future highway for data to flow, well, then, you know, then there's, there's, there's value that you can create. And so whilst we started in that journey of infrastructure, we quickly moved to adding the next layer of value, which is really services that reside on top of the infrastructure. And it's in that capacity that we took the value proposition of wireless, which is what? Anytime, anywhere, communications, you know, not being tethered, broadcast capabilities, uh, both voice and data, all those things that we've just come to take for granted today. We took it to other industries, like what you could do in retail to actually track your supply chain and find out where your inventory shortages were, or alerts and monitoring systems, uh, whether it was in a, in a home environment, whether it was an enterprise environment, or whether it was for the purposes of national security. A lot of the work that we did with the Department of Defense and the RFID policy to actually help secure the military supply chains and, of course, the borders of the country. And we said, well, geez, that's great. You've now done it in retail. You've done it in you know, military. You've done it in automotive telematics. You've done it in building wireless. In that journey, it was about 2002, Zev, that I developed type 2 diabetes myself. And for me, it was just a bit of wake-up call, was the honest truth. You know, as a management consultant, you know the lifestyle. You're always traveling. You're never eating at the right times. You're eating the wrong food. You're never sleeping. And so... Sure enough, I developed this and said, my God, we've developed wireless in every other industry. Why not healthcare? And we started to work with the usual suspects, uh, uh, Siemens, you know, Philips, Hilron, tracking equipment, making sure that the right drug was delivered to the right patient in the right bed at the, in the hospital. And it was a conference in 2005 where I actually was in New York City. It was a Qualcomm-sponsored conference that had a number of insurers, you know, health plans, large hospital systems. And it's there where I met uh, Dr. Suzanne Clough, uh, who was then practicing at the Joslin Center of Diabetes here at University of Maryland. And she was really commiserating the state of diabetes and, and, and saying, look, you know what? I try my best. They see me two, three, four times a year for five, seven minutes each visit. And I try to tell them what to do. I, you know, provide them all of this uh, paper and, and suggest what they should do. But it's kind of teaching a foreign language to somebody in four or five minute office visits. And there's only so much uh, one can do. Uh, there's no blame here. I think doctors try their hardest and we as patients try our hardest, but there's this wee little thing called life that gets in the way. Long story short, we said, hey, what if you could actually take uh, uh, the value of wireless? And, and keep in mind, wireless back in 2005 as it related to a device was the Nokia 6100 or the Motorola Razor, right? Where you had to press the three key four times to get the letter F. All of that to say, it wasn't what we have today, but we asked a very simple question. Could you do two things for a patient who suffered a chronic condition, in this case, diabetes? Could you, A, provide an app, whatever an app was in 2005, but could you provide an app whereby if a patient entered parameters into their cell phone, could be metabolic parameters like their glucose, their weight, et cetera, uh, if they entered their food parameters or their exercise parameters, could you actually provide them feedback? coaching at that point in time, and of course, over time, longitudinally, such that they could actually see patterns and trends, not just on individual variables, hey, this is how your glucose did this week, but also between variables. Oh, your glucose was high this week because of this violating meal or because you skipped the meds here, et cetera. And we said, secondly, if we could take all that data we were gathering and analyze it with an expert system actual software that was driven by evidence-based medicine guidelines? And could we actually extract the instructions that you would then provide to the doctor, nurse, anybody on the healthcare team to say, hey, here's where the patient was, say, three months ago. Here's where they are today. Here's what you should do uh, against evidence-based guidelines, but you know, do what you think is right for your patient. Could we move the needle on outcomes? And could we move the needle on economics? And what we found was staggering in that in the realm of diabetes, Patients who actually used the system, on average, were able to drop their hemoglobin A1C by, by two points, which is four times what the United States Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, requires for a new drug. And doctors who received that analysis were five times more likely to make a medication change or titrate a medication. In many ways, that was the epiphany we all had that said, hey, we're on to something. 
This is certainly something you never want to replace the doctor. That wasn't our intent. But if you could add technology judiciously in this precision, clinically validated way to bring the patient and the provider closer together, then you might have a shot at closing the care in, in, in uh, uh, gaps in care, and you would have a shot at actually improving outcomes. Was this the study that was published? Was it in diabetes care? There was actually a couple. So this was the first published in diabetes uh, therapeutics and technology. But then a subsequent publication was published in Diabetes Care, which is the Journal of the American Diabetes Association. And I think in many ways, after our first publication, it was just around the time when Steve Jobs was coming out with the iPhone. And so now there was this kind of you know societal acceptance of what an app was. We, we weren't the only people using that word. And we asked ourselves, okay, you could just be an app because what we built was software as a medical device as it's now defined by the FDA, or you could actually aspire to be of something that was higher in clinical value, like a medical device or say even a drug. And in order to do that, um, there were certain steps, requirements that we needed to undergo. The first was exactly as you mentioned, more clinical studies, randomized control studies, and one of those was indeed published in the Journal of the American Diabetes Association, where we effectively replicated results. But then subsequent to that, FDA clearance, ensuring that your security architecture to ensure not just things like HIPAA privacy, but all the proper encryption, authentication, non-repudiation, because we are talking about protected health information and data, integration into clinical workflows so that you, I mean, you know it, you can't ask an uh, uh, underpaid, overworked doctor to do one more thing that's orthogonal to their workflow, no matter how sexy it is, they won't do it. And so fitting into clinical workflow, having it integrable into EMRs, pharmacies, labs, but also fast forward to 2015 and the advent of wearables and, and what we call the Internet of Things. If a patient wanted to connect their sleep monitor, or their fitness uh, monitor, if they wanted to take pictures of their food to auto capture and calculate the number of carbs in their meal or help them find places that could, you know, serve up the right meals for their diabetes, just start to think of this ecosystem and what we could do. Yeah, this is really amazing. I mean, you were thinking this quite a few years ago that, and, and actually doing it, it, it with technology that wasn't nearly as advanced as the technology we have now. There's so much in what you just said. I, I want to break it down. Let's let's just go to the the actual devices it is now, the actual app or, or it's it's a therapeutic, right? It's it's FDA approved. So it's it's more than just an app at this point. If a person was prescribed this, and I assume that it has to be prescribed at this point, or can someone just use it? Well, that's a great question. So maybe in reverse order, um, uh, it can be prescribed, uh, certainly. Uh, that's where we started. But it can also be uh, made available in an over-the-counter uh, modality. So we have both the over-the-counter as well as the RX clearances from the FDA, which in English means if you want to deploy in a clinical channel, say in a hospital system or a doctor's office, you can. Uh, and, it, and it fits right into the physician's workflow, right? They prescribe, you know, Genuvia metformin, they now prescribe Blue Star. At the same time, if you want to take advantage of the fact that it is indeed scalable software, then you can also deploy it at the enterprise level, you know, with a large health plan, with a large self-insured employer, where they can make the necessary arrangements to introduce this to their employees uh, on a self-selection basis. People who want to use it can use it. They can send it to a targeted set of knowledge through the health plan uh, who's covering those patients who have diabetes or hypertension or, and in fact, in the broader digital therapeutics sense, think about how this can expand beyond this cardiometabolic space that we fit into things like neurological or respiratory others. But yes, it can be deployed in both the RX modality as well as the over-the-counter modality. And yeah, it is FDA cleared. And I think people are now starting to embrace. I mean, I remember when we were the only drummers in the band you know, with that drumbeat of it's got to be FDA cleared because it means that it's been through the hands of somebody who's verified and validated that it's safe for patients to use and that you actually employ good manufacturing process that's auditable, that's repeatable, that's scalable, that's, you know, uh, uh, measured. And in many ways, it raises the bar for all the noise that's out there in digital health to say, hey, if you truly want to be digital therapeutic, and you want to be able to demonstrate that your uh, software as a medical device can actually improve clinical outcomes, then A, you better have the proof, i.e. randomized control studies. B, you better have that stamp of approval from the FDA. 
and all the other things that are required to make it enterprise grade, like security, like uh, ensuring that you have a mechanism for people to onboard and engage in a frictionless way. I mean, at the end of the day, we want the ease of use and scalability and fun of using, you know, an Uber, a Spotify, an Amazon, but with the clinical rigor associated with the development of a drug or a medical device. And, you know, as I've been reading this literature in preparation for speaking with you, the you know, this term, there's digital health, which people use, and then there's digital therapeutics. And so is there a distinction between the two? There is. And it's something that you pointed out earlier in the introduction, WellDoc, alongside uh, a couple of other companies, Achille, Paratherapeutics, Voluntis, and, and Propeller Health, co-founded uh, the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. And if I were to start at the top, I think digital health itself is an umbrella. It's an umbrella that encompasses a number of different things. So, for example, if I uh, take a blood glucose meter and I put a cellular chipset, you know, like a 4G or 5G chipset or a Wi-Fi chipset inside of it, and I use that chipset to beam data that would otherwise just sit on that glucose meter into a call center with a nurse, well, that's digital health, right? Um, in this case, I'm facilitating the transmission of that glucose data that would otherwise no go nowhere to somebody who can actually pick up the phone, call me, and tell me what to do. So that's a, that's a form of digital health. Telehealth uh, and remote monitoring is another form of digital health. And when you actually scour the internet and you scour the app stores, there are several hundreds and thousands of digital health apps. But digital therapeutics is a subset of those. And digital therapeutics, we use the word therapeutic very carefully because it's synonymous and connotes you know, the same value that you would get, say, from a drug or a device, which means what? You can't put a new drug on the market without doing all the randomized control studies and showing the evidence and efficacy of your drug. And in the same manner, the digital therapeutic should show that uh, whatever mechanism, algorithms, it's not a compound anymore. It's the algorithms that are creating the clinical and human benefit. But you still have to show, if you're going to use the word therapeutic, that you have those in, in peer-reviewed randomized control studies. You have to show that it's like any other drug approved by the FDA. So there's a lot of digital health apps that are not approved by the FDA, which are not digital therapeutics. And those are just two of several criteria, the others being they have to fit into clinical workflow, just like drugs and medical devices do. They have to be secure. People talk about high trust and SOC 2 certification uh, as examples. But there are certain parameters that then differentiate this subset we call as digital therapeutics. It's, it's really applying a different level of clinical, scientific, and academic rigor, if you would, in the design, development, delivery, and support, which differentiate them from digital health. How many companies uh, like yours have gone through the rigor of the FDA and, and gotten their device approved as a digital therapeutic? Uh, very few in the broad spectrum, uh, very few. And so the couple that I mentioned uh, all qualified as true digital therapeutics companies. Today, the Digital Therapeutics Alliance is there with, I think we're now above 25 uh, members. And of these 25 members, most have gone through and have actually cleared. So for example, uh, big uh, uh, click therapeutics, et cetera, paratherapeutics who have gone through the same process. Some who have joined the alliance are in the process of getting FDA approval uh, and clearance. And so we said, we're certainly not about creating an elitist uh, mentality. Rather, we're really trying to bring a sense of rigor to what the wild west of digital health is today by forcing these kinds of very basic things that elevate the digital therapeutic to the, to the level of a true therapeutic as we know with, with drugs, uh, biologics and medical devices. And so, yes, for the broad part, most of these companies Small in number still, but as we're seeing is there's a movement and the fraternity is growing and people are embracing the opportunity that says, hey, tomorrow we may not even call them uh, digital therapeutics. Yet. We may just call them therapeutics and digital will take its rightful place alongside other drugs to actually help achieve better outcomes uh, by engaging patients in new ways. That's interesting. So, you know, you said this term, you use the phrase, uh, the wild, wild west uh, of digital health. And, 
you know, I, I think it does feel that way to a lot of people. I mean, there are tens of thousands of digital apps uh, on the market now. I don't know if it's, uh, last time I looked, it was at 50 or 60,000, something like that. And there are thousands that, you know, deal with different types of, of or aspects of health or, or therapeutics from, from giving information to taking information. So how do provider groups, hospital systems, how do they parse this out? I mean, do they, they clearly have uh, internal experts. And so if you were working inside a healthcare system, how would you, how would you do that? Boy, boy, you're asking the, uh, you're asking the billion dollar question. And, and in fact, I would assert that um, they themselves are trying to figure that out. So I'll give you a real example. You go today into any uh, health insurer or you go and walk into any large hospital system uh, or you walk into any uh, self-insured employer and just look at the registry at the front desk uh, of who's visited in the last week uh, as you sign in. And I would assert that you know, on a daily basis, there's no less than 10, 15 of these companies who are all coming and saying, hey, try us out, try us out, try us out. And yet there's no documented standard as to what to look for. Some of these initial pilots are based on relationships and people who know people saying, hey, I got an idea. Let's give it a shot. Let's try it. And in some cases, uh, they've demonstrated outcomes. In some cases, they've utterly failed. And I think that the industry at large is now starting to align around some of these key guiding principles that we mentioned, like making sure you have randomized control studies, making sure you have FDA clearance, et cetera. And they're hiring people. They're actually hiring people to actually help guide and say, okay, enough is enough. We've tried 30 things. Nothing's worked. Let's actually sit back. Let's understand what it's going to take to not just filter and identify those people who will meet all of the criteria we need as an enterprise, notwithstanding one, which is, you know, IT and infrastructure security, which is often left behind and, and is an afterthought. But now, especially in the wake of a number of these Internet breaches and data breaches, you know, people are starting to say, hey, that, that's something that's really important. But they're bringing on people to help understand how do you operationalize these things, which, yeah, you can have a check mark beside FDA. You can have a check mark beside I have clinical outcomes. but how do you actually get it into the hands of members, patients, and make it in, engaging such that they actually derive the intended benefit and use it, and not just for you know uh, three days or four days and throw it away like they do with most apps? How do they actually sustain that engagement to sustain the clinical benefit they can derive? I think that's where we see companies, and not just companies, we also see this happening within governments and organizations. So, for example. CMS here in the United States now has a team on digital health. The FDA, courtesy of Bakul Patel and Jeff Shuren, who've done just an amazing job, have teams on digital health. And so we're seeing that people are starting to bring on this expertise that they didn't have before to help, if you would, guide and if you would, create this opportunity and sustain it going forward. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I think it's it's something probably that health systems across the country need to start to pay more attention to uh, understanding that there is an expertise here. As you were speaking, I was thinking it, it's sort of akin to health systems have pharmacists now. They have PharmDs. They have teams of people who are expert in medications. At this point, you wouldn't, you wouldn't run any health system without that expertise. And yet we're in this digital health revolution and I guess what I'm wondering about is what kind of expertise do health systems across the country have in digital therapeutics? I think it's uh, kind of an open-ended question. It's, I don't think it's rhetorical at all. Let me, let me shift to asking you, uh, since you, you talked about the utilization and, and the consumer experience and, and the sustainability of, the, of using these things, could you walk us through how does Blue Star work? If a, an employer or a health system or provider group were to adopt it and use it with uh, their patients, how, how does it happen? How does it get deployed? What's the customer experience? What feedback does the customer get? As you were talking about before, real-time coaching, what information is the provider uh, given? How does it benefit the system from a population health perspective? Could you walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So maybe we'll start by saying, first of all, what is Blue Star? because then that'll set a baseline for them, you know, what value it delivers and how it's delivered in different operating environments, if you will. So Blue Star, in effect, as we said, software is a medical device. 
It's comprised principally of three things. Then. So the first component is the uh, software that's downloaded to a patient's mobile device. So it could be their phone, could be their tablet. Interestingly enough, there's also an internet browser version of it. And we found that, uh, especially in our Medicare populations, users still, right, wrong, or indifferent, the vast majority of people, uh, and we see this with our data, above the age of 68, actually prefer to interact with that web browser version versus a mobile app. And of course, as technology continues to proliferate in that age band, we'll see that trend shift over time. But what that coaching app does is it provides a basis for the patient to first configure by entering the medication regimen that they're on, by uh, pulling in through APIs, their lab data, pharmacy data, EMR data, and now provides them an opportunity to enter any one of a number of parameters which sit effectively in six buckets. So they can enter, for example, metabolic parameters like their blood glucose, blood pressure, weight. They can enter medications, all the medications, not just related to diabetes. If they're on vitamins and herbal supplements, they can enter whatever they take and set up their schedule reminder. They can actually do insulin calculations and titration on the device. Thirdly, they can manage all of their food, which is actually fascinating because today the number one used feature in our product is actually food. And they can capture their meals via camera. They can barcode scan products. They can actually search through databases. They can find the nearest restaurant, which is fascinating. I use that every day, literally. They can find the nearest restaurant and then filter through menus against a preset set of criteria that say, this is what's healthy for me to eat for my condition. So food, they can enter their activity and they can enter a series of both psychosocial as well as symptom notes. And what Blue Star does on that coach is it actually tells them what to do. And by that, I mean precisely. So for example, Zev, if you enter an after-lunch blood glucose reading of, say, 254 milligrams per deciliter, which is high, and I enter the same 254, but you're on, say, metformin and genuvia, and I'm on a different drug regimen. I may be on, say, biotin and Bieta. The feedback that Blue Star provides is custom to that combination, clinically customized, which is why we're a FDA class two medical device, the FDA insisted that they review all of our branches of logic to ensure that we were in compliance with all the existing uh, evidence-based guidelines. So what it does is it provides you that feedback, but it also provides you all the coaching over time with the trends and patterns and insights and provides educational support as the patient goes. That's kind of element number one. Element number two is what we call the smart visit report. And this is a report that's actually targeted towards the uh, healthcare team. And instead of bombarding the healthcare team with raw data, which is the last thing they want, it provides them a report that effectively summarizes one, where the patient was, two, where they are today, three, what's changed, and four, what evidence-based medicines suggest they should do, i.e. it may be time to titrate this medication or talk to them about portion control at lunch because they have higher after-lunch readings. Whatever that observation is, that translates into clinical action that's provided to them, and it can be sent via fax, it can be sent in an email, it can be integrated into their EMR. And then lastly, is a population management portal that says, I'm an enterprise, I now manage Blue Star across, say, you know, thousands of patients. So think of Blue Star as the sum of those three, the coach, the Spartans report, and this enterprise management portal. Now, how is it deployed? Well, if it's deployed in a physician's office, that literally the patient, uh, the doctor conversation says, you know what? I think I got something here that's going to help you to help me manage our diabetes together. Here's a brochure. Here's an access code. Get onto it. Log on. Let's get it set up. One click. If they're sending it from their EMR, all the data, we call these deep link technologies. All the data can be pulled in and configured so that it's kind of a one-step configuration. If it's a different environment, say a self-insured employer, where they may send an email or they may have a webinar, or they may have kind of a fair in the lobby saying, hey, anybody who needs help managing their diabetes, come pick up your access code, or if it's an email, click on this link, and then you you're, you go through the same methodology um, uh, to actually configure and set up their Blue Star. So we've observed that there's different methods uh, or different channels to get patients, members, employees, et cetera, activated. And then, of course, once you get them activated, you know, the value of Blue Star and its delightful user experience and this multivariate uh, ability to communicate with uh, their providers, if you would, 
it kicks in and you see a strong engagement. So maybe the way to think about it is that there's multiple ways to get them activated depending on the environment. And there's multiple ways to keep them engaged because you can also use Bluestar as an augmentation tool, right? If you have, say, a coaching program, a live human coaching program, now those live coaches can be privy to and participate in that smart visit report. And now just think about it. Instead of me picking up the phone as a nurse and calling my diabetes patient saying, hey, how are you doing on your diabetes today? And they have no idea what's happened in the last week or the last month. Now they're looking at a formatted analyzed report that says, hey, these are the three things we need to discuss today. Let's have at it, right? So it's a powerful yet flexible mechanism to kind of bring them together. On that account, the let's say the health coach, the diabetologist, the, the provider, physician, nurse, PA, how do they have access, automatic access to all of this? Or is that something that has to be given piecemeal? Oh, that's, a, that's another great question. It is really up to them. So in some environments, we've actually had uh, coaches, nurses say, you know what? I just want the raw logbook. I just want to see their blood glucose logbook. And we're like, okay, that's fine. In some cases, you actually have, for example, a patient who is new to insulin. Maybe they've had diabetes for three years and, you know, it's a progressive disease and their physician has decided it's really time for us to, to move to insulin. And as we all know, insulin requires a little more care, a little more understanding. And maybe what they want to see is not just the logbook, but they want to see how they're taking their insulin when they're taking it. And they want to see what's happening around meal times. So they may actually want to see what they're consuming uh, at each meal, pictures of the food. So they get a sense of, oh, okay, we have a couple of things to work on. So what we found in short is that different people may want to see different things. And it's therefore incumbent on the digital therapeutics company to isolate those and offer up uh, these in either an integrated way or offer up in a manner that, look, I just want this or I just want that. Uh, and we allow that flexibility because it's never a one size fits all, right? That's what we've learned, whether it's clinic A to clinic B or it's a clinic versus, say, a, a self-insured employer environment. Different people may want to see different things at different times in different modalities, right? So how how many um, individuals are, how many people are on this or are using uh, Blue Star and how, uh, do you work directly with healthcare systems or, or employers or just give me a sense of that. Yeah. So as we explained earlier on, when we first received our FDA clearance from the FDA for Blue Star, it came with an RX indication for use only. And it's fascinating because that was back in 2010 and we were the first such software as medical device to be cleared by the FDA. And there was a little bit of, you know, well, we're not sure if this is going to, you know, You've given us all the evidence, but, you know, we're still kind of, as an organization, we, we think that this should come under the purview of a doctor. It shouldn't be something that's just available over the counter. So we literally had to then go and sell this through physician channels as though we were a Merck or a Pfizer or a GSK, you know, kind of stocking their shelves with sample drugs and saying, hey, when you have a patient come in. And we did that for several years uh, and put several thousands of patients on the product, but went back to the FDA about two years ago and said, okay, it's a knock on wood, it's going well, everybody's doing great, here's our data, no you know, adverse events, no patient safety reports, nothing like that. Would you possibly consider allowing us an over-the-counter uh, indication as well? Because then we can actually take this and begin to scale. And they said, great, show us your data. And we did. And after a lengthy review of that data, they said, fine, uh, great, good job. Uh, and so then they granted us the second clearance. And so now, we do have a number of both employer uh, customers, plan customers. We're now in discussions with several states, if you would, at the Medicaid plan level. And we continue to work with physician practices, both individual as well as large, uh, to the tune of several tens of thousands of patients. And, and we continue to grow. And now we're looking at expanding conditions and expanding geographies. And so that journey is just, I would almost say, we're, uh, we're as uh, all the digital therapeutics companies will tell you today, Everybody's taken a couple of warm-up laps, is the honest truth. We're all kind of at that beginning because the industry itself is starting to form and it's just an exciting place to be now. You know, you mentioned, so it sounds like you're, you've, you've been using this or it's been used by tens of thousands of people with diabetes across the country. And of course, as you mentioned, you've been in, in randomized control studies and published in peer-reviewed journals. How many studies have been done on Blue Star? 
uh, today, the latest count is we have 40 peer-reviewed studies, posters, etc. And of those 40, three are actually randomized control studies, two here in the United States and one in Canada. And I think for us, we will continue to do these peer-reviewed studies because A, it's a commitment uh, from WellDoc to our fundamental DNA, which is evidence and scientific rigor. Uh, in the development, which is really a table stakes requirement for digital therapeutics, as you know, others like Volantis and Pear and others have done uh, as part of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. But what we've also learned is that the learnings that you can gain from these clinical trials studies is to not only look at the clinical efficacy in different populations, locations, you get sub-demographics on who's using what, uh, where is the effect the most? Is it through this feature or that feature? Who's engaging with it the most? Who's connecting their wearables and who's connecting their... The data we gather and garner, that data is then very useful to inform a number of things. One, it can inform actual product development and new feature sets. Two, it actually can inform the activation pathways. So what we've learned in activating in a clinic versus activating in a self-insured employer, where you don't have the benefit of having that kind of trusted doctor-patient relationship saying, I think you should really do this. How do you take lessons learned from one environment and invoke them and implement them in another environment to increase activation rates, engagement rates, persistence rates? And so I think the value of doing these studies not only continues to show that and demonstrate that it absolutely works, it's Dr. Collins' famous quote from the NIH, right? Is the absence of evidence, the evidence of absence. If you want to be a player in this space, you have to have the evidence. And I think payers and employers and, and systems and plans are embracing that. So it's great that we have 40 today, which is a, it's unusual, I think, for, for a pharmaceutical company to have 40 studies on their drug. But it, it is something that uh, we've been a trailblazer at. And I'm, and I'm not saying that with any arrogance. We're very proud to say that. And we're super excited to see others following the same pathway in this space of digital therapeutics. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a second. I want to ask you a, a question about what is, you know, you could call it a revolution, you can call it a movement and where we are in that. But before I ask you that question, a moment ago, you mentioned that state Medicaid programs were were knocking at your door. And, you know, I think, I think people may have some preconceptions about that. It's interesting you, you mentioned it because I was literally just reading an article uh, about the use of digital health and the Medicaid population. And some of the stats are startling. For instance, 90% uh, uh, of people who are on Medicaid, in fact, have smartphones, right? And so that might come as a surprise to folks. 30% uh, of people on Medicaid actually use wearable devices. The numbers were somewhere between 25 to 50% of people on Medicaid are using their smartphones for health-related purposes, such as refilling prescriptions, documenting, as you were talking about, uh, biometric readings, uh, those sorts of things. So clearly, the opportunity is there for this type of digital health and therapeutics in the Medicaid population. And I think what's exciting for me is, and in North Carolina, we're at a very, very uh, I think, a uh, wonderful juncture in terms of, of uh, caring for people with Medicaid. It seems to me this is a, a just a profound opportunity to greatly improve the care of people with chronic disease uh, who are, in fact, on Medicaid uh, in terms of access, in terms of potentially lowering costs. So I, I'd just like to hear if what your thoughts are on the use of Blue Star and other digital therapeutics in the Medicaid population. Yeah, you're, you're, you're uncovering something of, of, of very great importance, uh, not just here, but as we expand the connotation of Medicaid to uh, underserved economies globally, uh, I think everything we're going to say here applies there too. So you start to think of the non-G7 countries. Um, so, so I think it's the confluence of a couple of things. One is exactly what you mentioned, which is, surprise, surprise, the Medicaid population are proliferous users of mobile technology. And in fact, it's their lifeline. That's how they communicate. That's how they watch TV. I mean, what was the statistic on the most recent World Cup championship? That the World Cup soccer championship was watched by some five and a half billion people around the world. But we know from uh, Pew statistics that there's only three and a half billion television sets in the world, right? So, well, where did the rest of them watch it? It's their mobile devices, right? And so these people, their access to the internet 
and their access to communications, their access to social networks is all the mobile device. And yes, they are using it to fill their prescriptions, to you know complete their grocery list, to download their grocery coupons. That's what they're, so there's a societal move that says these people are actually amazing users of that anywhere, anytime technology. Secondly, and this is work that we actually recently uncovered with our friends at IBM Watson Health Proven Analytics, which is, so Blue Star consistently across populations delivers on average this 2.A1C reduction in diabetes. And again, the significance of that, if I take the average of the top 15 drugs today in diabetes and I look at their A1C reduction potential, they average about 0.8 across these top 15 drugs. And so we're literally seeing more than 2x the effect in shifting that very important metric. And of course, the FDA considers a drug efficacious if it bends the A1C curve by at least a half. So, wow, two points. I mean, literally, people would ask us in the early days, are they swallowing the phone? We said, no, they're doing what their doctor and their care team has asked them to do. So we worked with our friends at IBM Watson Health and said, can we quantify what the economic value of that 2.A1C shift is? And so we actually worked with them. They have this uh, market scan database, which is a collection of over 200 million annual patient adjudicated claims that come in every year from over 1,100 insurance carriers across all sectors, Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial. And they worked with us diligently. In fact, they published a white paper on this, which shows that on average, Blue Star will deliver about a $3,150, so $3,150 per patient per year cost savings. And so now you go to a state Medicaid plan who are capitated in nature. They have a certain budget that they have to hit. And about that budget, well, it's uh, their burden. These people are ripe to take that total cost of diabetes and, and certainly as we think beyond diabetes to other diseases and just take cost out. And what's the active ingredient? It's getting patients to engage uh, across these multiple dimensions and do what they're supposed to do to reduce their rates of hospitalization, their rates of ER utilization. In some cases, they may be on less pharmacotherapy, so lesser drugs because they're now managing their lifestyle better. And so not only do you have this confluence of the positive social dynamic, which is, you know, people in that population tend to use their mobile devices for everything. You now have an economic rationale that says the state should be interested because there's a tremendous opportunity to remove costs. And so when you go to India and China and you go to Sub-Saharan Africa, they all talk about, we want accessibility and we want affordability. And in many ways, digital therapeutics is a rare thing that offers both, right? Sometimes accessibility comes at an increased cost. Think about telemedicine. Yes, you have increased accessibility, but now you have to pay for the fiber and the, the Cisco box at the other end of the, oh my God, these are expensive, right? But they already have their cell phone and you're tapping into the power of that ubiquitous technology that knows no socioeconomic boundaries. So that's really a point, not just for our Medicaid here in the US, but really globally. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It's, it's almost like the new triple aim. I mean, Digital health really has this potential, as you said, I mean, to radically improve access uh, in remote regions, uh, both in this country and, and across the globe. It can obviously lower costs tremendously and, and make it more accessible. And to the point you mentioned, it engages people. It actually enhances engagement. And so it's it's really just profound. And, you know, you mentioned India and China. And for those uh, folks out there who are not aware, so uh, the prevalence of diabetes in the United States is currently 10%, which is is huge. But when you go to India, my understanding, it's it's over 15%. China, it's over 20%, the prevalence of diabetes. And in places like uh, Qatar, it's over 30%. And so uh, across the globe, we're seeing, it's not just the US, we're seeing an epidemic. Uh, it's just unprecedented. And I can't imagine how we're going to treat it in the way we currently, there just aren't enough doctors. There aren't not enough clinics. People can't get to it. The cost is just prohibitive. And so I, I see digital health really from a chronic disease management perspective as, as the only viable solution. And then, and then you coming back to what you said before, which I think is so critical for the Medicaid population. It's not just a chronic disease. One of the biggest issues in Medicaid uh, is uh, the issue of maternal uh, health. 
and uh, women who are pregnant, uh, not getting to the physicians, not doing the appropriate uh, sorts of uh, checkups, et cetera, not taking care of themselves appropriately. There are apps right now, and yours may be one of them too, or you may have this technology as well, that already now are able to provide women with 24 seven, uh, complete comprehensive care, you know, from the beginning of their pregnancy till after they give birth. And so to be able to put that into the hands of the Medicaid population through this digital health and therapeutics, I think is again, just huge. And we know that again, from a population health perspective and and a Medicaid perspective, one of the largest costs are in fact uh, due to uh, premature births and to to terrible events occurring uh, around birth. So this is, I I think this is just tremendous. I'm I'm just so excited about the work you're doing. And I want to ask you, I know you have to go pretty soon, but what I really appreciate and, and respect about the way you think about this is you're seeing this as more than just your company in this and, and, and trying to be competitive. You really see this as a movement and inviting others into, as you say, into your alliance. And so how do you, how do you see this movement? Um, how would you describe it? And where do you see it going in the next three years? I mean, you know, in medicine, you know, as well as I do, that things move really slowly. Do you see us on, on sort of this inflection point? And, and I'm just very, very curious how you see the, the, the current situation. I think uh, I see, yes, an inflection point, but I, I see an accelerated one and I see uh, convergence. And here's why. So first, your earlier point, uh, when you think about pregnancy management, you think about cognition, you think about uh, ADHD, you think about substance abuse, and you think about, and this goes far beyond just Medicaid, right? It goes really to the broader population. But then you think of, you know, people like Achille and people like Pear who are tackling this head on where there may be no drug today to improve cognition, but Achilles Digital Therapeutic has created uh, through randomized control studies um, the ability to actually improve cognition. And so it is the drug. It is the de facto therapeutic. And so I think what you're seeing is that for us, the cardiometabolic space was an easier place to start. Why? Diabetes, when you think about it, it's an insidious disease. I have it. I know it. I'm well controlled. I've seen uh, deaths in the family. I've seen deaths everywhere uh, because people weren't taking care of their diabetes. But diabetes is it's a very well codified disease. There are more rules and guidelines and, and measurements associated with diabetes than pretty much any other diseases out there. And it lends itself, therefore, to solutions like these that can actually you know, convey the value of an intervention, a digital intervention, against some figure of merit. In our case, whether it's you know A1C or whether it's in the continuous glucose monitoring world, time and range, we can actually do that correlation and say, look, we can actually impact this, this, and this. And yet a lot of these other diseases don't have that luxury, right? Cancer is a great example. With the exception of ovarian cancer, where I can measure CA125, there's no marker today, especially on a day-to-day basis. I have to track using symptomology, neutropenia, you know, vomiting, pain, uh, things like that. And so I think that what you're seeing is that across the broader health domain, whether it's cardiometabolic, whether it's neurological, whether it's you know oncology, whether it's substance abuse, you're seeing this fraternity, this movement as you described, you're seeing the movement gain momentum in areas that are outside of, because for the first years, I'll tell you, it was all about diabetes and it was all about respiratory and that's kind of all it was, but now it's, so one trend we're seeing is we're seeing that different people are pushing the breadth of this envelope and at, at speeds that are mind-boggling. But where is it headed? As a patient who may suffer from diabetes and hypertension and, say, obesity, I don't want to go to three different places to manage my, uh, my health. I want to go to one place. And so I think what we're going to see, and we're going to see it very quickly, and we've already kind of helped lead the way where today in Blue Star, in a singular user experience, I manage diabetes and hypertension and weight. And you think of that triangle of death all in one application that's clinically sound where 
if I just have diabetes, well, I'll get diabetes-specific feedback. But if I have hypertensive or congestive heart failure as comorbid conditions, well, I'll get the clinically precise feedback that takes into account those comorbid conditions. And I think what you're going to see is an increased convergence. And there are certain diseases that will logically flow together. So maybe there's respiratory that comes together and cardiometabolic that comes together and neurological that comes together. But I think you're going to see convergence. And that convergence may be just us. That convergence may be across companies. You'll see people collaborating and co-creating going forward uh, where they bring their platforms together to offer enhanced value, kind of the one plus one equals three model. So I think we're going to see that. And last point, we're going to see it happen at a clock speed that's much, much, much faster than the traditional clock speed of healthcare innovation. It's going to happen in ways that actually cause some angst for the payers. It's going to cause some angst for the people responsible for billing. They're going to figure out how to bill for this stuff. It's going to cause some disruption, but uh, no pain, no gain, right? We're going to, we're going to have to see that kind of uh, uh, disruption because otherwise the healthcare system won't take advantage or full advantage of what this digital therapeutic movement can actually offer. And that's exciting because I think collectively, which is why we're we're so interested in not just ourselves, but the movement of this entire industry. Collectively, we have an opportunity to solve perhaps one of the biggest problems facing humanity today, which is how do you curb chronic diseases and how do you curb the costs? Because they're just untenable and they're growing at rates that are untenable. Yeah. And on this, you, you paint such a hopeful and bright picture for the future of healthcare and an accelerated one. So I can't thank you enough. It feels like we're just getting started now. We're just getting warmed up. And, and so I, I hope we have a chance to talk again sometime soon. Absolutely. I look forward to it. And, and we'll be speaking at a number of conferences. I was just talking with the health folks today and, and they made an invitation for us to come to Las Vegas. And I hope to see you uh, and I hope to see you as part of this movement. And in many ways, um, we're all in this together. We're all trying to fight this good fight and solve this massive problem for humanity. So it's just it, congratulations and kudos to, to you putting this series together and, and for all that you're doing. I just want to thank you again for being part of creating a healthcare, for bringing us just amazing perspectives. And and uh, I, I just want to take a, a second to turn to the audience. Um, and I do this on every single time. I post a podcast. I'd like to thank the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who, who are taking care of patients. Uh, we truly, right? We truly appreciate for what you do, recognize how critically uh, important it is, how hard it is to take care of individuals, families, communities. I hope you've uh, enjoyed and benefited from this uh, conversation as much as I have. Uh, this is Ev Newworth on creating a new healthcare. Until next time, be well.